Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and joining me as always is Nicholas Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hi. And joining us as seldom is Mike McCann. Hey, Mike. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, Mike. This is uh, your first post me having, well, I really didn't have a baby. My wife did. Your first, your, your, your first post baby episode, and we're glad to have you back. Thanks for making a long trip. Um, Mike lives in beautiful Pasadena, where right now temperatures sometimes get to about 115 degrees. Yeah, so it's nice to be out here. Where, where are we exactly? Kind of like just Los Studio Angeles. City. Yeah, we're mm. just in Los Angeles. Mm. Mm. So today, today's episode of The Mean is episode 34. We brought Mike in to talk about something that uh, Mike is excited about, Nick's excited about. We're all excited, so hopefully it'll be a peppy conversation. Woo-hoo. The name of this episode is Nostalgia. Which, uh, Nick, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, doesn't nostalgia mean an old pain? Mm-hmm. Something of that nature, like a like yeah. pain that comes back from from some time, um, <laughs> an old wound. And we wanted to talk about it because, first and foremost, it seems like nostalgia is everywhere mm-hmm. these days. Not that it ever has been completely gone, but as much as we talk about new things and experience, new things, new technologies, and new forms of communication and media. Uh, this kind of loops into our podcast on reboots with Gem and the Holograms and things of that nature. Uh, but nostalgia is a bigger force than just a media force. It's a political force. It's a, it's a cultural force. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to maybe throw it to Mike first to kind of introduce us to Mike, your experience of nostalgia over the last few years as you've kind of been in grad school and been in Northern California and then Southern California, how have you encountered, what are some of the significant ways that you've encountered nostalgia? I think um, definitely uh, in politics, which I'm sure all of us will be will be talking about. Um, I mean, clearly with Trump about making America great again, mm-hmm. um, also in the Democratic Party. Um, but I'd say even instead of instead, what I've been finding, instead of people trying to envision a better future, what they do is they try to envision a better past, yep. which is kind of the pitfall of nostalgia. So there's that. I don't want to get into too much detail for sake of conversation. Yeah. Have you seen it in any other areas besides politics? Yeah, definitely in culture, uh, specifically to like the quote unquote hipster as well. So I think, and this is related to the conversation you guys had about Pomo a really long time ago. Episode two, check it out. Yeah. Super good. But I think in a, (laughs) in a postmodern world in like my generation, which is like the millennial generation where they don't, where like the meaning is kind of loose Mm -hmm. of like what, what's important in life. They've kind of looked to, or we've looked back towards places that had more meaning. And so we've appropriated, which is a pretty important word in the recent weeks. uh, I nostalgic ideals of the past, at least, especially in style. Yeah. Um, So I think, the the rise of the thrift store mm-hmm. is a is is a large response is a nostalgic response to trying to find uh, meaning inside of an individual and who they are by connecting themselves to some sort of ideal mm-hmm. past like the beard and mustache culture mm-hmm. you know kind of the old timey you go to Target there's a bunch of mugs with mustaches on them yeah uh, people wanting to drink out of mason jars mm-hmm. uh, which could just be environmentalism at, at on one level, but they're very old fashioned looking 
You know, mm-hmm. I know people who carry around their own mason jar to drink out of. And I mean, that's really retro because that's that's kind of the steampunk turn of the century. But then there's the new. I mean, they really like '70s fashion and '80s fashion, and even something mm-hmm. as familiar as like the '90s. Yeah. Like that whole brand, like I think they're called Chubbies, mm-hmm. like male short bathing suits, mm-hmm. which is fine, but it's like, we're going to put them in lime green. So you feel like you're on the, like an episode of Miami Vice. Yeah. Also, you know, I've heard that. Normcore. Um, exactly. Yeah. I've heard that the, the ratings for reruns and Netflix of like friends, yeah. show friends have, have been just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. That that the the amount of people watching old shows, Nick at Night type of stuff, mm-hmm. is just through the roof. I think another for me a, a way that I encounter this is that just through I don't really watch a lot of late night television, but from time to time I'll see something that's on uh, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon is like the king of nostalgia. Oh, especially his aesthetic too. His visual aesthetic is very Art Deco. Yeah. Which is very... and he'll bring back the cast of Full House. He'll mm-hmm. you know and and then we had the a series of skits on his show with Full House, and then all of a sudden we have a Netflix show Fuller House, which is a you know a callback, a yep. reboot kind of, uh, and we we have all these different elements of nostalgia happening in our culture and our politics. Um, Nick, how have you encountered nostalgia? What in what ways has has it kind of impacted you in your your day to day? Yeah, um, I guess to not, I agree with everything Mike said. Um, so not Thank to you. repeat. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, We're also just, right. Yeah. <laughs> to not repeat anything. Um, I would say I've also encountered it on people who are like anti hipster. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of times where it's like, oh, I, the phrase, I know this is a bad insert movie, song, book anything but it came out when i was a kid so and then yeah. that's like kind of like a uh like forgive all type movement yeah because it's no, like yeah. if you were a kid then like you you should like be able to enjoy that stuff for the rest of your life justifications mm-hmm. with butt are never justifications mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> this is exactly. gonna sound super racist but <laughs> yeah. but as a kid i was racist so i'm nostalgic <laughs> for yeah I just, it America. was a simpler time yeah. yeah that i'm really nostalgic um but a lot of times i'll be like yeah well this is just not a great movie so we shouldn't say it is and people will be like i know but remember when and moving from that i think a lot of film recently in particular and also music popular music has used intertextuality or kind of films referencing other films to mm-hmm. make them seem better than they are i mean if you look at Lord of the Rings, obviously it's referencing the book, but no one's nostalgic for it because there wasn't really a great film adaptation yet. Mm-hmm. But if you look at The Hobbit, it's like, there's all these moments of like, guys, remember when, like six years ago, yeah. <laughs> something that will happen in the future in this timeline? It's like really confusing. And yeah. so there's a lot of like nostalgic touchstones for the audience to kind of be like, oh, this reminds me of seeing Lord of the Rings in the movie theater, which... I guess is good. I don't know. So I've 2003, seen it where have you gone? Right. Yeah, guys, bring me back. Bring me back. Well, I mean, I have a friend who his podcast blew up. It's called Gilmore Guys. And mm-hmm. it's entirely 
a nostalgic podcast. It's mm-hmm. about Gilmore Girls and what it came on Netflix. And he's, you know, he's, you know, they're famous. They do live shows. They, they're at things like Comic-Con and South by Southwest and stuff like that. And it's entirely fueled by nostalgia. Um, mm-hmm. And you start to have certain bands who are making a comeback. Like, you know, I have some people who know Chris Caraba, the lead singer of Nickelback. Uh, of um, Dashboard Confessional, he he couldn't he couldn't play a show with a thousand people six or seven years ago, but now he's playing fifteen thousand person stadiums because it's come back around, right? People are like, well, I thirty year old women are like, I want to remember what it was like to be a fifteen year old when Dashboard was huge, and it's completely revitalized this guy's career, and it's a really interesting place to be. And I know that's not a new thing. Obviously, Aerosmith was nostalgic in the nineties back to the early 80s and 70s. So it's not like nostalgia is a new thing. So one of my questions I had for you guys was, what do you think is unique about our current state of nostalgia? If anything, or is it just a repetition of of past nostalgias? I was thinking about this on my drive over, and I think that there's a difference between inspiration and, and nostalgia. I think the movie Midnight in Paris examines this really well. Because, I mean, I'm not going to go into the plot. But it's it, a good movie. It, but it's a great movie. Um, and it, it it examines nostalgia by its the movie's mechanic is time travel. But I think it, it shows that over time, people always do look to the, bat, to the past mm-hmm. to try to make sense of the present. Yeah. I think that's natural. Yeah. I think that that's a very wise thing that somebody and a lot of people say about, like, looking. You need to know your history so you yeah. understand your present. Yeah. But I think, I feel, I get a sense that, especially like talking about Aerosmith, I think that they were, they were drawing on inspiration Mm -hmm. from what they, what they were doing in the seventies and eighties to then create music that was still true to their, who they are, which is a very seventies and eighties band, Mm -hmm. but it was also ready for the nineties where I feel is what's happening in our culture is it's, it's pure nostalgia. There is, it's, it's pre, it's, I feel like it's pure, of course it's not pure appropriation because our, we don't live in the seventies right now, but that there's pure appropriation of aesthetics Mm -hmm. in sound, in, in clothing. I'm just focusing on those two like cultural Mm -hmm. uh, artifacts. I mean, like, especially like a song like Blurred Lines, right? Okay. Robin Thicke. Which was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. He got sued. Yeah, because because I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, what What did they do to this Marvin Gaye mm-hmm. track? Mm-hmm. I was like, this guy's going to get in trouble because yeah. this is literally just a Marvin Gaye song. That's yeah. all this is. But it's just, it's, it's, and it's not like what. So do you think it's a more wholesale appropriation of the past yeah. than it's ever been? Because if you can look at hip hop now versus hip hop when it first started, they were totally nostalgic when hip hop first started. Cause they're like, we're going to take Motown records and we're going to mm-hmm. do this new technique with it. But they made a completely new sound. Even Puff Daddy, like in the late nineties was taking backtracks and things mm-hmm. from, and Will Smith was doing this as well. But they were making something new, mm-hmm. and even when even when hip hop started sampling itself, it was mm-hmm. still like okay, you're drawing on inspiration. But sometimes, like for using the artifact of blurred lines, where it's just like you're not even you're not even making something new. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Nick? Yeah, I think it's I think inspiration comes from 
trying to work within the tradition by also expanding it, you know? So like if you're inspired by Motown, um, I don't know um, if this is a great example or not, but um, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're inspired or not, let's not say Motown. Let's, like if you're inspired yeah. by divas, okay. Like huge female divas from the late seventies or whatever. And you're Adele, you're definitely working in that vein. You know, you're mm-hmm. writing songs that are dr- melodramatic mm-hmm. and really showcase your voice. Mm-hmm. You have pretty big hair. You have big hair. You just, you're huge in like every way in terms mm-hmm. of personality and physicality, everything. But you're not really derivative because every diva who came before you was also part of that tradition. But by being in that tradition, moved it forward. Does that yeah. make sense? So yeah. you're saying that that moving a tradition forward, like if you listen to, and I know this is controversial because a lot of people hate him, but if you listen to mm-hmm. John Mayer, John mm-hmm. Mayer's basically taking He's Stevie lovely. Ray Vaughan yeah. and yeah. making it into singer-songwriter pop land. Yeah. Like he's, ta- mm-hmm. he's, he's taking, it's, yeah, he's taking the tradition of date rape rock and like really <laughs> expanding it into the new 21st century arena. And that was a that was a joke, but I mean like. <laughs> Maybe not though. I don't know. Someone help me. Um, like, I'm sure someone will tell you whether or not someone will message me. John Mayer is not part of the Daybreak Rock. <laughs> but this is. I'm not going to take credit for this. Um, this is kind of what T. S. Eliot talks about in his really famous essay, "Tradition and the Individual Talent." Mm-hmm. And he's basically saying what I just said. Like to actually be a part of a tradition is to participate in making it move forward and keeping it alive. Yeah. We're, being repetitive, being derivative is something like Nicki Minaj sampling Sir Mix a lot and yeah. still talking about butts. And it's kind of like, okay, so you're a woman, so I guess this is kind of a step forward, but really, what is being added to this? In, yeah. in reality, you're just trying to mine like whatever value you can out of people recognizing a novelty rap song like baby got back and being like, Oh, that's funny. And then I guess we would never spend 20 minutes on this podcast talking about, but it's, but but I think that's the thing about our culture. It's, it's irony is a big deal, but it's compounded irony, which Mm -hmm. it, it, it's like a reference to a reference to a reference. Yeah. And it's like, well, this has no meaning anymore. Yeah. Eventually it gets pretty muddy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit specifically about the political sphere And um, we've been reminded, I mean, 2016 is a fairly unique political cycle because of a lot of different things, but mostly because of Donald Trump. And I would add Bernie Sanders, who in different ways are some of the most extreme political candidates that we've ever seen. Bernie, Bernie Sanders is the most legitimate socialist who's ever run for public office on a national level in the United States ever. And Donald Trump is um, the most bald faced populist um deal maker outsider that's ever run sociopath yeah sociopath yeah Yeah. Mm um the (laughs) the connections between bernie sanders and donald trump are not just populism um and i'm borrowing a little bit here but i've been thinking about this on my own uh, for a long time. So Yuval Levin has written about this. He he wrote a book recently called Our Fractured Republic or the Our Fractured Republic, something like that. And he talked about how nostalgia is kind of ruining both the left and the right. 
And um, I, when, upon listening to him on a podcast on The Federalist, I, I realized that I had been thinking some of these same ideas too, but I'll give him full credit for articulating it at a much higher level. In essence, the Republican Party, since George W. Bush, has been trying to find the next Ronald Reagan. So they've been trying to return to the early 1980s. Which was a great time. It was a great time for certain people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was a great time for certain people. Um, But they've been trying to find the next Ronald Reagan, and they've been trying to solve America's problems like Reagan would solve them. Mm -hmm. But America has a little bit different problem, a set of problems than we had in 1980 when we had stagflation, when we were the dominant political and economic power on the globe, where we didn't face the same kinds of competition and the deregulation and the opening up of marketplaces and all that, that, that was going on back then. And and the solutions were really necessary for that time. Margaret Thatcher did it in England. Uh, Ronald Reagan did it in the United States. Other people were doing it in different ways that Pope John Paul II was kind of um, opposing the Soviet Union in his own way, especially because he had he, he was from Poland and Poland had been kind of a satellite power of the of the USSR. So there was a different enemy. There was a different um, need. There were different global currents. Uh, there are different things that needed to be changed. But the Republican Party has time and time again tried to look for that next Reagan, um, especially since the legacy of George W. Bush is so mixed. They're like, well, we can't go back to that compassionate conservatism you know, that didn't actually shrink government and expanded government, but just in a Republican way. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is we're a completely different country than we were. And you you can't do that. I, I heard uh, Mitt Romney's um, campaign manager say on a podcast recently, you know, Ronald Reagan won. I'm going to get these percentages wrong, but Ronald Reagan won 67% of white people. And he won 45 states. Like, he crushed his mm-hmm. opponent in 1984. Mitt Romney won a higher percentage of white people in 2012, and he lost. Because America's not as white as it used to be. Wait. And it's not as white <laughs> yeah, as it used to be. Yeah. And that's a fact. Mm-hmm. And you can cry about it if you're an old white guy, which a lot of them are, as they vote for Donald Trump. But <laughs> that's, that's not going to solve your problem. So when Trump is promising... To make America great again, he's not doing the Reagan thing necessarily, but he's he he wants to hearken back to a time where America was an unopposed worldwide superpower that dictated deals to everyone and said, "You will do what we say." Mm-hmm. And he so the "Make America Great Again" thing is one side of the nostalgia coin. The other side of it, and he he shares he shares uh, this with Bernie Sanders, is it's anti globalization, anti free trade, anti globalism, anti technology even where Donald Trump is saying this in terms of deal-making, but Bernie Sanders, his whole thing, his whole economic platform was, let's try to reverse globalization. Let's try to make it so that we protect our industries, protectionism, tariffs. I mean, I think of the Howley-Smoot tariff. I think of like things from the 1930s that ruined economies because we had nationalistic economies rather than, hey, let's try to make everything better. Um, Donald Trump wants to put a 45% tariff on certain goods. Are you mm. kidding me? Like Bernie Sanders is using this nostalgia of, hey, guys, remember that one time where the whole world got destroyed, World War II, and then for the next 20 years, America was the only economy? Let's go back to then where we could have a factory job. You could get a high school diploma. You could work a factory job for 40 years in one place. You could have great benefits, uh, a very standard um, white picket fence, American house owning. You retire, you get a fishing boat, and you have a little lake house on Lake, Lake Minnetonka. Sounds great. 
And let's just say, let's be charitable and say it was great. Let's just be charitable <laughs> and say it was awesome. And that everybody, mm-hmm. including black people and women, got to do, got to have access to that as well. Let's yeah. just be super duper charitable yeah. here. But even then, that's not America today. That's mm-hmm. not the situation. We can never go back. But you have Bernie Sanders making this argument that that's what we should be doing, that mm-hmm. we should be trying to reverse globalization. Now, he would never say it that way, but he's trying to be a protectionist. He's trying to say, we need to protect American jobs. Now, let's go to the next level and not be so hyper charitable and say, even in the 1950s and 60s, this golden age of American economic powerhouseness, once again, the only reason this existed is because we and others destroyed most of the developed economies of the world, including Germany and Japan, and we were rebuilding them through the Marshall Plan and, and other plans. But also, white men didn't have to compete with white women and Hispanic men and women and black men and women and Asian men and women. So that, that time will never come again. And the nostalgia that it takes to be able to say, well, we need to go back to the way that things used to be, or we need to readjust because we've become too globalist, we've become too free trade. All of these are based on fantasies. Mm-hmm. It's not a complete picture. And so politically, we are in a time of probably the most nostalgia I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm only in my 30s, but I've never seen an election cycle that is so based upon emotions tied to uh, making America great again or returning to policies of the past that we think will magically solve our problems. So for me, that's that's the most trenchant um, manifestation of nostalgia I see in our culture. Do you guys have any thoughts on that, that political part of it, that economic part of it? Or um, is there another facet of nostalgia that you find more significant for your everyday life? I mean, and the, co- the comment I have is like, it's the, it's the, the comment that's always lobbied against any sort of nostalgic argument, which is looking, examining the, the entire, the breadth of that time that they're talking about. But both of those times for both of these positions was when consciousness was, rep- was repressed, where consciousness had a cap on the top of it. And it exploded. A lot of good things came out of it, like uh, sex, like the sex movement, feminist movement, civil rights. Those are great things, but also that ex- because they they bottlenecked it and then cap put the t- the cap on it so tight, we got the largest crime rates that the country has ever experienced. The modern serial killer was birthed out of those times, and I think like. I, I, it, it, it's 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 troubling. That's all I have to say. It's just troubling, and I think I think we're smarter than this. Nick. Yeah, I mean, once again, I agree with Mike. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. One Tally. time I'm gonna be like, no, Gold star. <laughs> Mike, you're like, stupid. No. <laughs> Mike is stupid. End of argument. Um, no, I. I think so too. Part of nostalgia is selection. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's being able to remember the pod racing scene, but <laughs> not the parade at the end. Like or Jar Jar Binks at all. Or Jar Jar Binks' existence. You know, it's it's pod the racing ability. scene was pretty great though. Yeah, it was. Exactly. But in your mind, that in the arcade game in the front of movie theaters that came with it are what you remember. Mm-hmm. But you don't remember the like four hours of galactic Roman political commentary kind of mm-hmm. and i think it's the same thing when you look it will try to reduce giant decades of history into these remember when times yep. because the picture is never complete it's like you said we have to be so charitable to bring up something like 
post-World War II America and not immediately run into problems of segregation, civil liberties, LGBTQ stuff, feminism stuff, um, tons of, I mean, the Red Scare, McCarthyism, like everything is a mixed bag. And we should say that all history is selective, right? Anytime you try to tell a story, anytime you try to recount something, it's selective. But it seems like nostalgia is almost willingly Well, it's emotionally selective. Yeah, based on what makes us feel good. There's nothing wrong with limiting your data. In fact, I think every form of knowledge does do that or you wouldn't be able to operate. You know, but to um, have an emotional impetus that is also not connected to any form of concrete reality is really, really, really scary, especially in a political realm, because you're allowing the emotions of what it was like to be, which this is even, I'll bring this up now as a rabbit trail, but what the hell is with people being nostalgic for times they didn't even experience? Like that's the biggest thing. So it's not just like, I'm a 90-year-old man who remembers this. It's I'm a 28-year-old young Republican with a tie, and don't and I miss the Reagan era. It's like, okay, I don't really know if mm-hmm. you experienced the Reagan era. Yeah, probably. I think it has less to do with experience and more to do with narrative, especially like if you're if you're a young person who has a good relationship with their parents and they're mm-hmm. Republicans, you're likely to be a Republican. Mm-hmm. If you're a young person who has a bad relationship with your parents and the Republicans, you're more likely to be a Democrat. So part of it is this, like, the storytelling angle. It's mm-hmm. not about experience, no. and that's part of what makes it dangerous. And hmm. I was and thinking about this, and I know, so I'm reading this book by Peter Rollins, who's a philosopher, kind of theologian-y guy, and I know that he's, take this isn't his own idea, but he's talking about nostalgia in the beginning part of the book, of his book called The Divine Magician. And he's talking about how nostalgia, it's a response to try to deal with complicated things, nuanced ideas, and try to simplify them in a way that's easily digestible. But what happens with nostalgia, so that's like kind of a natural response, but then what we do is go, so why isn't it like that? And so when we're already doing, or when, when nostalgia, acting the praxis of nostalgia turns this current situation into simpler terms. And then when we ask, well, why don't we have that? We go to, again, to another simpler thing, which is a scapegoat. So for Bernie, it's the 1% and the people that are against Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. who I don't exactly know who those people are. And then for Trump, it's, I mean, it's all, it's every single person of color and, well, not every single person, but no, Mexicans, Mexicans and his and Chinese people, Chinese people, other countries, Mexicans, stupid and, politicians. Yeah, stupid politicians, but in, in Islam, right? So yeah. those are the big ones. So it's Mexico, China, Islam. And I wish, like, I wish things were that simple. Like, I really wish that the nostalgic argument was satisfactory. Well, because then solutions would be pretty simple. Yeah. Like, if globalization and millionaires and billionaires are to blame for all your problems, then all we have to do is is stop trading with other countries and kick all the millionaires and billionaires out, and all our problems will be solved. But yep. that, that's obviously not the case. I was thinking, <laughs> while you guys were talking Simple. about the larger kind of s- scope of this, I was thinking about the micro, kind of the personal nostalgia. And I was thinking mm-hmm. about the trope of 
the middle-aged man or woman who starts cheating on their husband or leaves their husband or wife um, to go shack up with like a high school sweetheart that they reconnected with like over Facebook. Like this has happened a lot mm-hmm. um, because like you said, Nick, there's such selective editing that they're like, well, I was so in love then I had these amazing feelings. I want to feel that again. Mm-hmm. But obviously they don't remember like, like awkward, heavy petting in the back of a Camaro resulting mm-hmm. in uh, premature sexual uh responses that weren't actually mm-hmm. that great you yeah. know yeah. um people don't a lot of realize boxers exactly <laughs> people aren't thinking about the nitty gritty what it was really like how much they hated their life the acne they had they're cutting that out and being like well i had this one time where i felt this thing so deeply and i just want to feel that again and i think of um it makes me think of the movie american beauty mm-hmm. which is kind of prescient when you think about it, that it, it in what the late nineties, mm-hmm. it describes this generation of Americans who were so dissatisfied with their present that they tried to do things to recapture their past, whether it was for Kevin Spacey working out a lot and then fantasizing about his daughter's cheerleader friend or whether mm-hmm. it was for um, the mother. Was it Diane Keaton? Yeah. No. Um, who was it? It's like Diane Keaton lookalike. Yeah, whoever she, oh. oh, yeah, I know who she is. I don't Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, lady. Who's <laughs> yeah. cheating who's cheating on her husband with some beefy real estate agent guy. So there's all these And these, then the military guy that's dwelling back on Yeah, on his whole fifties. He's yeah. living a fifties life. Yeah, so there's all these different iterations of nostalgia that are going on. And I think that people do it in their personal life and they do it on a, on a macro scale. And I, I was wondering this, is there ever a time where nostalgic, cause we're, we're, we are destroying nostalgia in this podcast. Sorry, nostalgia. Is, is there, a, yeah, sorry, nostalgia. I hate you. <laughs> is there ever a time that nostalgia can be a good thing, Nick? Or do you think it's pretty much always bad? Oh my gosh. The stoic inside of me says no. Okay. The human being inside of me says yes. I think nostalgia can be good as a reminder of things of times that were good. I mean, it's, I think it's perfectly okay to be like, I'm in a pretty crappy situation right now. Maybe I'm like in between jobs or I'm applying for something or I just feel trapped and to kind of, you know, watch Dragon Ball Z Mm -hmm. and, you know, call your friend and have a very nostalgic conversation about Toonami you know, or something like that, just to kind of relive that joy for a moment. And I think, like all things, being self-aware enough to realize what it is makes that healthy. To make it unhealthy turns into, oh, man, if I could just become a DBZ expert, you know, Mm -hmm. this nostalgic rush is giving me such so much purpose. Or if I could just go back and relive or try to relive these what I view as very simple, great moments in my life. I think it's that it's trying to like bring the emotional fantasy into realness that makes it really unhealthy. Yeah. Like I'll give you an example of something I do that some people would say, well, it's part of a tradition or it's part of mm -hmm. you sort of being part of a line of people. And then on the other hand, people would be like, no, you're just participating in nostalgia. There's better ways to do this. 
Mm-hmm. So I smoke cigars. Mm. Cigars are not the best delivery system for nicotine. I should probably, if I wanted to be a big douche, I could vape. Or gum, chewing gum. Or I could chew gum. Like if I wanted, if I wanted to get a nice little nicotine shot, help me think, like, you know, get, get, get me up in the morning with a coffee or something like that. Ryan Patches Huber. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it would really, it would be more efficient. But I do this whole, I, I get the cigar, I take it out of the humidor, I cut it or punch it, I toast it. I light it. It's a ritual. It's part of a tradition. I think about how the the fact that people that handmade these cigars have been making them the same way for hundreds of years. You know, it's the same thing with anything that we do that's kind of old fashioned. Like I have a, a a vinyl record player, and although some people make the argument that vinyl is better than digital, it just sounds better. My record player doesn't. Mine's crappy. Um, so some record players, I'm sure, do. Mine is not one of those. But there's something nostalgic about those things that I do. Um, but I'm trying to f- figure out why I don't have a pro. Maybe it's just because I'm doing them that I don't have a problem with them, or maybe it's because I don't really hang a lot of meaning on them. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it's not like. But it, what, are you smoking cigars because you want to be Don? Dr- I mean, I don't even think Don Draper smokes cigars. No, smoking smoking cigarettes. cigarettes. Yeah. I mean, who's, who do you want to be? I mean, the only guy that came into mind is Fidel Castro. Which I, I don't be, think you're trying to be. Let's Fidel. say maybe I want to be Sigmund Freud. Yeah, Freud. Oh, it's, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like when you're smoking cigars, you're trying to put yourself back to a time where, like, ah, this was the. This is when people smoke cigars. It's like you're smoking cigars because it's kind of like a finer thing. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think like I do like certain old fashioned things. Like I like think like things that I am a historian. I write about history, so. Like, I like things made out of leather. I like mm-hmm. cigars. I like to drink old fashions, not just because they are old, because they've been around for a while, but just because there is a sense. But I think for me, I feel like if I allow some nostalgic things in, in my sort of leisure time, mm-hmm. like, that's okay, but I wouldn't want to base my worldview on it. And I wouldn't want to base, like, serious political, economic, family-type decisions mm-hmm. on, like, like, my wife and I aren't going to be, like, all right, who should go back to work now that Max is, you know, our son has been born. Um, All right, well, nostalgia would dictate that Jessica stays home and I go back to work. Like, we're like, no, Jessica can make more money than me, so she's going to go back to work. So for me, and I know that gets into a couple other issues, but for me, I don't make serious decisions based on nostalgia. So for me, maybe the nostalgia is like like an ornament or a, or like a trapping or a, uh, it's trim for me. It's not like the main thing. Like I don't want to live my life based on nostalgia, but do you guys have anything that's part of your lives that you're like, well, this might be me being a, a bit nostalgic or this is, I, I allow myself a piece of nostalgia here and there. Yeah. I, I think I'll answer that, but I wanted to say the last question, but I think that healthy nostalgia, usually I think listening to you guys, it's experiential. Okay. So like, restaurants and cafes and bars have done a great job of doing nostalgia right. Yeah. And even the industry of itself, like you even, I know this is going into the finer things episode, check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but like even third wave sounding annoying third wave coffee shops mm-hmm. have taken a really nostalgic idea of what a cafe is, what a social yes. space is and actually updated it, but also mm-hmm. totally tapping into this nostalgic vein mm-hmm. that feels cool. Like those those light bulbs, those glowy like yeah. filament Edison, light bulbs. You know what I'm saying? Edison you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. like how many of how many spaces that we go now have those? Yeah. It's not that they're like the most efficient, awesome kind of light bulb. It's that it reminds us of something that maybe 
we never really knew, but we saw in the movies or something. Yeah, and a latte at its core is just, it's when it was invented, it was, it was done. Like, there's nothing else you can put other shit in it. Yeah. But it's just milk and coffee. There you go. That's it. And so there's like a nostalgic, but current, but past, mm-hmm. but it's kind of this paradox. Um, but for me, I would say is film is a huge place for nostalgia. And I've kind of talked about that, especially on fandom. So I've experienced a lot of my fandom through nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, so Star Wars, I like it a lot because there's my memories are connected to mm-hmm. it. Like memories about my dad and all these other things mm-hmm. or playing video games, for instance. Is Even if I'm playing a video game that was made this year, I want to play it because I want to feel like I did. Yeah. When I was doing, you know, X, staying up really late playing N64. Well, connected you know? to all of that, I was going to ask you, because you're kind of our comic book guru, what do you think like that, is yeah. the state of the comic book industry or your own reading of comics right now vis-a-vis nostalgia? Like, what what do you see? Is it anti-nostalgic right now? Is it super nostalgic? Is it somewhere in between? Like, what what do you see the relationship of, of, of where comic books are right now? So there are nostalgic cookbooks, comic books. There definitely are. There's one called Bombshells that DC does, and it's all the it's all all the girls are drawn like like classic pinups. Mm-hmm. It's not over sexual, but it's 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 very retro and yeah. it's a callback. Um, but I think it it balances. I mean, these characters, all the characters that they're mostly working with, are really old, especially the big two, like Marvel and DC. So there's always a nostalgic element to it. Yeah. There's certain books that are more nostalgic than others. Superman's got a really nostalgic feel to it because, I mean, nobody can get the I, the picture of, you know, Action Comics number one of Superman holding a VW bug over his head, uh-huh. which was made in the 30s, right? And somebody like Captain America, who is a man trapped in time. We've talked about him before. Mm-hmm. And so he, it's built, nostalgia's built into mm-hmm. the narrative. Yeah, Captain America is nostalgic. Yeah, he is. And But I think, I mean... Read Captain America if you want to like get deeper into this topic because the whole book's dealing with what do you do with nostalgia in a time where nostalgia doesn't exist, mm-hmm. like where it can't really exist. Um, but I mean, I feel like comic books. I think people perceive them to be like that they struggle with nostalgia, but they're very current. Mm-hmm. But they're it's a very balanced art form, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Nick, what, what's um, do you allow yourself any nostalgia? I mean, you talked a little bit about playing a video game, calling an old friend. Is that sort of the avenue that you, that you see for nostalgia in your own life? Yeah. I think I enjoy nostalgia when it's communal, you know, like when it's something that it can, it reminds people present of something that we all experience at some point, especially even with strangers. Like oftentimes I'll maybe be talking to someone at a bar or one of my coworkers I'm not super close with. And we'll both kind of go on this kind of nostalgic slide of like, oh, you remember that? And being like, yep. oh, yeah. And it's like, it kind of allows you to empathize with that person and be like, oh, they had the same experiences that I had. Mm-hmm. And I also like nostalgia as an aesthetic sometimes. So I like you said, the pinup comics... Mm-hmm. Mad Men does a great job at mm-hmm. simultaneously giving you like high octane nostalgia, but also showing its um, crappy side as well. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of things um, like that. I do like that kind of art form. I also like when people are very much, I've really enjoyed the recent synth pop of the last 
10 years that's basically just like we really like the 80s and everyone's like yeah, yeah. and i like when it's not too self-aware it's just this is literally an 80s pop song that was written yesterday so i was I listening like to like some that. brandon flowers the other day um, mm-hmm. he, he had like a whole album that it was just like i didn't feel like it was he, he wasn't ripping anybody off he was like i just want to make an 80s album he's the main guy from the killers Mm-hmm. Um, it just seemed like he just wanted to make an 80s pop album. And that just seems like kind of a fun thing to do, to be like, this is just what I'm doing. Like, I'm doing this in this style. And I don't... I'm still... Mike helped earlier with his kind of, like, delineation between what's nostalgia and what's not, but I'm still trying to grasp why I react against certain forms of nostalgia sometimes and why sometimes I'm like, oh, this is fun, or, you know, this is something that, that I appreciate. And I, I haven't fully put my my finger on it. I think, it, I think, be, I think on some level, I feel like that ex- your experience is, uh, not to sound too postmodern in about talking about postmodernity, but that narrative mm-hmm. is very like commonplace for, I mean, you're bored, you're, ge- you're, you, you, your toes dipping into Gen X a little bit, yeah. but you're still very much experiencing this millennial reality where I think, the word hipster, just using them as an example, is kind of an, it's a derogatory word mm-hmm. in culture. And I think it's derogatory because we don't like what they're doing with nostalgia. And we, we look at it like there's also this, this desire to be differentiated from each other, to have our own personal narrative or whatever. And so with that, there's this push towards, it's weird because there's a push towards nostalgia and then there's a simultaneous push away from it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, more now that I verbally process that, I'm kind of, well, we're yeah. both baffled now. Yeah, I think it's an extraordinarily <laughs> complex relationship that we have with it because we we are a generation that has experienced um, almost traumatic levels of change technologically, culturally, yeah. narratively, philosophically. Nick, what do you see in this whole landscape in terms of nostalgia and philosophy, especially postmodern philosophy, is there anything that could help explain our particular brand of nostalgia where we are po- we are in a postmodern reality, mostly a postmodern reality experiencing nostalgia, whereas 50, 60 years ago, nostalgia would have been experienced in a modern way? Like, is there something significant about the shift from modern to postmodern that might explain um, a shift in the significance of, of nostalgia? Yeah, I think when postmodernism um, kind of tears down meta narratives. Mm-hmm. It opens the door for more casual nostalgia, I think. It, mm-hmm. What I mean by that is if you have like this hyper progressivism of like turn of the century science boys yeah. who are like, technology's always great. And what could ever go wrong with Europe in the next 30 years? And we love building rockets. And what would, you know, for space exploration, never for murdering children, teehee. And like, just, I'm mocking it, but yeah. in their eyes, this kind of grand narrative. Some of the golden age science fiction stuff, too, even participates in this. Definitely the creator of Star Trek, um, especially yeah. with uh, Next Generation treats humanity as like this we'll just keep advancing and we'll get to this point where there's no money and no problems and no are you talking about gene roddenberry yeah that little that little boy um and when you have those giant very modernist 
meta narrative. Even Marxism is one. Um, mm-hmm. It makes it where focusing on the past is kind of silly, and you kind of have this hatred of the dark ages and these awful times, and everything's always about being the next thing and moving forward. When postmodernism kind of calls that into question, especially yeah. socially after World War II, after the Cold War, where I think a lot of people are like, why are we doing any of this? Like, technology's great, but it's also kind of like, Ugh. Maybe like, there's some bad stuff. Maybe yeah. all the stuff we were promised isn't all going to, like, be awesome. Mm-hmm. And, like, you keep giving us nutritional science that changes every five years, and we're just kind of <laughs> figuring out, like, why my husband had a heart attack. And, like, blah, blah, blah. He was on an all-carb diet. Yeah, he was on an all-carb diet, and then an all-fat diet, and then an all-protein diet, and now we're realizing it's all it needs to be all carbs again. Oops. Um, each paid for different industries, by the way. Um, but it's by destroying those things and kind of bringing the future down to where everything else is, it allows people to go, oh, I, like, was born in the wrong time. Like, I wish, yeah. because they're not nostalgic. Most times, people aren't nostalgic for, like, the way of life of 1950s America. Mm-hmm. They're nostalgic for, like, Oh, man. I mean, the most I've ever heard is my music taste. I was born in the wrong generation. Like, I hate all this stuff. Like, I wish I was alive for Woodstock. I wish I was alive for whatever. And I think that brings us back to um, Midnight in Paris, because the whole funny part of that movie, and I know whatever, spoilers, who cares? It's every time period they jump back to is there's people in that time period who are like, I wish I was alive for a previous time period. Yep. Cause it was yep. so much better. It's like nostalgiception. Yeah. It's like nostalgia and in, inside nostalgia, inside nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So it's, it's kind of that. I think postmodernism really sets the stage for people to glorify the past because there is no, um, hierarchy between past, present, and future, because nothing's going anywhere. Really. Yeah, I think maybe the most significant part of your analysis is when we're promised this progressive, technological, always moving forward future, and then it's disappointing, what else are we going to do but react to that and go look to the past for a better time? Because we were told that the past was awful, and that it, because it has to be if you talk about things always moving forward. Mm-hmm. Things are always getting better than the past was awful. But then when you're like, oh, this isn't that great, maybe you go, well, maybe the past wasn't so bad, and let's take chunks of it and relive it because I don't want to be right here right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's like, yeah, exactly. That, when when we were talking about this, I've been thinking that our current cultural setting, we're, we're stuck in the present. Mm-hmm. We're just so hyper-present. So we're extremely meta. We're constantly, it's like, it's like being in a relationship with somebody and constantly talking about like how great we are of friends. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. wait, what are we doing right yeah, now? What is this about? Yeah. What are we doing? And I think it also helps explain like a dissatisfaction with the present and or the future explains why extreme political candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump arose. If the economy were going great, like it was in the nineties, it would be about where we're going. Yeah. But society's in decline in economic recession or in really, really weak recoveries like what we're in they tend to focus on the glories of the past. That's what the British Empire was doing in the 20th century. 
that might be the reality of the American 21st century. If we continue to feel like we're in decline vis-a-vis other nations, we might continue to return to this idea that we were better off in the past because we can't feel good about 10 years from now. Yeah. And I was kind of talking about this with scapegoating a little bit Mm -hmm. when I I briefly mentioned it, but I think that the plus side of post-modernity is that we've, we've begun, we've, and it's a good thing is that we've we, we can see our reality in the in the way that it is actually very ex- and extremely nuanced and that there's it's in a constant tension on every single angle. So to be extremely hopeful is to be overly optimistic because, you know, you're going to be neglecting this, this and this. And I don't know. I don't know, like the the way through it, but I, I, I we were talking before the podcast and I was listening. I was been watching CNN's documentary series on the 60s and 70s and i watched the speech that uh jfk gives maybe it's his address to the union it's about going to the moon yeah and he like and they're talking they, they laid the, out the the reality of the space program in the united states when he made this mm-hmm. they they had just gone to the moon i mean they had just gone to space but the only thing they had done was they shot a rocket straight up and they just barely got out of the mm-hmm. atmosphere, and then it fell so back probably down. Probably 1961. Yeah, and by 1969, we put a person on the yeah, moon. Yeah, and they sucked. But because but JFK said we're going to put a, at the end of this decade, and he did it before the end of the decade. Mm-hmm. We're going to put someone on the moon, and and that like kicked America's ass into gear. Jokes on him. He got shot. Yeah. yeah. Ha, Spoiler ha, ha. alert. Um, but like I don't know. I was thinking about that, and and then we were. I was watching. You know, Martin Luther King. His speech is about. He has a dream for what the future yeah. would look like. Yeah. And I think, and I mean, we mentioned Marx. I mean, there's tons of problems with him, but also like he came up, he under, he was able to understand what capitalism was by forging uh, an, un, an utopian ideal of the future. And there's, I mean, it's extremely problematic. We don't have to get into it, but like because of that, he was able to look at his present. And I think that there isn't, I think that there's a huge lack of dreaming mm-hmm. in our culture. Vision. Yeah, there's there isn't vision. There isn't like this is what we can be. It, it's like instead, it's looking at like and nothing against the Black Lives Matters, but it's saying like it's Bernie going looking at the Black Lives Matters and saying like this is this is the hope for the present. Where it's like really that's what you're gonna say because this is easily the most unorganized social mm-hmm. movement. That well, we've it's seen also very backward facing. Yeah. Like it's a very nostal- not nostalgic, but it's like many grievance movements, whether they have true real grievances or not, are based in the past. They're based in stuff. And talk about experience, like a lot of the things that grievance movements talk about are things that previous generations have experienced. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to diminish that. Like slavery was real. Slavery continues Mm -hmm. to have an impact and an echo through the generations. That's not to, I'm not making a value judgment. What What I am saying is when you say our hope for the future is this movement, that loves to talk about the past, it kind of puts you in this spiral where you don't, you're not going anywhere. What the hell are we doing? Yeah. Cause uh, Martin Luther King didn't say the hope is me mm-hmm. and all these people that are with me in this mm-hmm. idea we have. He's like, well, no. and in contrast, Barack Obama said when he was elected or when he was running, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting God. for. And Americans is so bad to show, <laughs> to show control. how it's flipped. Also, um, King was always pushing towards a future vision. He mm-hmm. was always saying, I want to live in a country where someday my children are based or are judged based on their character, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Our current racial dialogue is all about obsessing over 
the color of our skin, whether it's yeah. white privilege, whether it's Black Lives Matter, all these different things. So we're kind of caught in the spiral of neither a future oriented vision nor a realistic, um, you know, to, to critique conservative people, a realistic vision of the past, yeah. right? So we're kind of caught in this limbo where we're not really doing either. So we're stuck in this weird pseudo present, pseudo past. Yeah, and 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 the and what are, and there's nothing wrong with this, and I think it's great. But the, but our greatest achievement of our social consciousness recently is is making a third bathroom, which is fine. But like, really, that's the thing that we're like, yes, we did it. It's like, come on, just make a third bathroom. Moving on, like we should have done that a long time ago. Like it doesn't matter. It's it's great. But like, or don't we want something bigger than this? It's a good question. No. Yeah, I guess mediocrity is just what postmodernity has produced. Well, I think it's fracturedness. It's yeah. really hard to get everyone or even a a um a quorum together enough people to do something. What's the scientific term for that, Nick? What? When you get enough people together to accomplish something. Critical mass. Okay. To get a critical yeah. mass together to do something, you have to now unite all these fractured narratives, right? All these meta narratives. And so I'm going to say something that's weird. Maybe one of the hopeful things about nostalgia is that you could actually maybe motivate multiple groups of people based on a vision of the past. Maybe that's what Bernie Sanders was trying to do. Maybe that's what Donald Trump was trying to do. But what my critique is, is it has to actually be more factually based than some of the efforts that we've seen. Where we can go like, hey, like, for example, I think Barack Obama does this really well, and I try to do it well as, as well. I try to hold current day leftists to the standard of old school liberals. Because mm -hmm. I think the standards of old school liberals are really great. Like, hey, everyone gets a seat at the table. Everyone gets to have part in the discussion. Don't try to silence anybody. Don't try to shame anybody. Let everybody have a voice, and let's actually argue it out and see who's right. I think that's a great thing about the past of liberalism and about the left. And the left has lost that. Mm -hmm. You see Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock... Uh, Barack Obama, other people complaining about that and hearkening back to a liberalism that, yes, there could be some nostalgia there. They could be making old school liberalism out to be better than it actually was because maybe some people weren't invited to the table, even though they they claim to be inviting everybody. But I think it's factual enough to be a rallying cry that's persuasive to get people to actually want to live in society together without saying, no, you're black, you're silenced, or no, you're straight, you're silenced, or no, you're a woman, so you're the only person who gets to write a poem. Like, I think yep. I think that there are certain past resources that we can draw upon, and maybe even, and this is going to sound really Machiavellian, Nick, so maybe you'll like this, but manipulate people's nostalgia in order to actually retrieve pieces of the past that were better than what we currently have. I mean, that's what a politician needs to do. That's his job. That's what JFK did. That's what every politician ever who's ever been successful is, is manipulated nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King held people to the standards that were laid out in the founding documents, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Yeah. He used people's own sense of nostalgia for what had been, even though it wasn't completely accurate. He used that to shame them into trying to live up to a future standard that actually fulfilled that. And I think that was part of the brilliance of the civil rights movement. I think I think maybe we're, we're actually onto something constructive here. Nick, could you... Tell me whether or not I'm crazy. I don't think you're crazy at all. I think besides being like purely Machiavellian and being like, oh yeah, nostalgia, tee hee, and then being like, never mind when you're in office, <laughs> I think it can be used to, it's like, it's an abstract version of what I talked about earlier about why I enjoy nostalgia, 
maybe you recognize that you both are nostalgic for the same thing, you know, and it kind of creates a bond between me and a stranger at a bar. But we could also do that between the multiple factions within a political party. So if you both realize like, oh, we're both nostalgic for, I don't know, freedom of speech or something, mm-hmm. um, then it's like, great. You can use that as a, as mm-hmm. like connective tissue. And even if it's not completely things. true. So you and I know mm-hmm. there has probably never been a time where people's art was judged purely on the basis of whether it was good art, right? Mm-hmm. There are times when if you were a woman, if you were a minority, your art wasn't going to be considered because you were not a white man. Mm-hmm. But you and I can kind of go, hey, remember how it used to like seem to matter a little bit more, like whether your art was of high quality, not just what your identity is. We can use that nostalgia to go, wouldn't it be great to set up an ideal again where your poetry or your writing is judged on whether it's good or not, not just whether or not you have the right hyphenated identity group in your description. Like, I think that could mm-hmm. actually be helpful. Well, and I think it goes towards there that there's this weird value and devaluing of emotion. So where it's been overvalued, where it's like, I'm offended. Mm-hmm. So therefore you're wrong. So and like comedians are backlashing against this because they're saying that, we actually have a really important place in society because mm-hmm. we need to point out to you idiots that mm-hmm. like these things that you think are so important actually are not very important. Yeah. Like and you guys like, kind of talked about that. Yeah. Like Chris Rock said at the Oscars, yeah. like we, we were too, our grandmother was too busy worried about getting Lynch to care who won best cinematographer. Yeah. Like, like that's an offensive thing to say, but there's obviously truth conveyed in that. And it isn't nostalgic for the time that Amer- African-Americans had to worry about being lynched but it is nostalgic for the sensibility of being able to tell the difference between what's really important and what's not. Yeah. Which I think a lot of older people think has been lost. Exactly. And I think like in our postmodern world, we say like, well, everything's relative. Well, an insane person is not relative. Either you're crazy or you're not. How do I know that? I don't exactly know, but if I'm around Foucault someone knows Nick, yeah. well, if I'm around <laughs> someone who's crazy and I feel like that person's crazy, they're likely crazy. I shouldn't be around them, but I think like there needs to be, like when it comes, because when you're talking about evaluating something on what it is for what it is, I think that there needs to be a pushback towards like, what is my emotional response to this? Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, that also requires our country to like raise its emotional intelligence as well. I think it's a good point. Nick, um, Mike and I have given a little bit of what we would like to see uh, harnessed in this kind of arena of nostalgia and sort of vision and future and past. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with as kind of a final thought of what do we do with nostalgia? How can it be harnessed? Or is it just something that we kind of need to minimize or, or get real about in, in our everyday lives? Um, I think there's definitely place for it. I think any world where people try to live beyond nostalgia is, is impossible, <laughs> but yep. As we've brought up before, in my opinion, the dangers of basing any type of intellectual or political movement on nostalgia just are almost too high, you know? Like, part of the reason to be really charitable to the contemporary political landscape, part of the reason why it's so hard to get a group of people to do something is because they're so fractured, but they're probably so fractured because we have the largest amount of people who can actually be involved in politics than ever. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, I imagine it was a little bit easier to talk about the Whiskey Rebellion 
in early in early American society because the only people who were really talking about it were white male landowners. Yep. So it's easier like, to get stuff done when most people can't be a part of it. Yeah. And now it's like you have eighteen year olds who are voting. You have seventy five year old Vietnam veterans. You have Latino women, you have, you know, just every possible human structure and personality type is voting together. And I think even though nostalgia can be used positively, there is a danger of when you sell things through nostalgia. Most of the time, the forgetting that we're talking about comes at the expense of some group of people. Mm -hmm. So a really big part of that um, for me in my, in my culture, just as a personal experience, I live in Logan square in Chicago. And right now there's like a huge conversation about gentrification and what it means for all the Hispanic families that live in my neighborhood. And Logan square has been like a Hispanic community for decades now. And it's, there's like these new condominiums going up and people, the retail spaces, business, commercial areas, the rents going up for those. And people obviously expect that the nicer the businesses are, the more demand there will be for people to live here, higher rent, blah, 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 gentrification. We'll do an episode about that sometime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a joke. And, I think yeah. it's episode 31. You're yeah. so nostalgic. I am so Thanks. nostalgic. Remember when, Nick? <laughs> I remember that. Remember when? I am so nostalgic for something that hasn't happened yet, but we talked about. Um, or is in the process of happening, I guess. But... The whole thing was brought up to me anew by someone who is from a Polish family who still lives in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. who was like, hey, well, back in the 20s and 30s when my grandfather, I mean, this man is like 55 years old. He's a regular at uh, where I work, like where my grandfather moved here with his family. And this neighborhood was all like Polish and Eastern European people because yeah. this was a meatpacking city. Yeah. And those were the people who worked in that industry. And it's kind of like a lot of peop- young people are using this nostalgic narrative of like, you know, Logan Square was this wonderful place of pure Hispanic family living. And like now it's being like silenced by white yuppies, not to detract from that, but there's always a counter narrative. There's always mm-hmm. some form of reality. Yeah, that And we'll talk like, about this more broadly yeah. when it comes to cultural appropriation on a future mm-hmm. episode, because cultural uh, appropriation is an infinity loop. It's yeah. like... It all depends on where you stop. Like someone mm-hmm. can feel really bad for any group of people if you stop at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And I'm not saying that that means that the argument against displacing these families is wrong. In fact, I think it's actually a really um, powerful argument that should be approached. But when this form of limited, blinded nostalgia of like 1975 Logan Square, and that's the only time we're looking at, and we are we don't care about what came before. And we certainly don't care about what's happening right now. It kind of distorts reality for those people. And I always, always think that is dangerous. So not to make it negative again, but I would still say I am 75% negative on nostalgia and 25%. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. I'm definitely never like super into it. I mean, I think we're just going to have to leave it there for now. Um, okay. Next episode, Nick and I are going to try to bring you an awesome science bro episode. Maybe talk about Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye and why we should mm-hmm. care what Bill Nye says about things. Other than the fact that, me with we're, that we're nostalgic about being kids watching his kid, Bill Nye the Science Guy TV show. 
Um, but we're going to try to do that for the, our next episode. But until such a time as that comes, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And Mike. And you'll hear from us next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.